0: Read God's Word. Our Father, we want to thank you again that you are the God of heaven and earth, that the whole world is yours because you made it. And we've said sorry tonight for the fact that we don't always treat you as God. And we pray therefore this evening for the work of your Spirit in us, that we might learn more about you and that we might learn to relate to you as we should And we pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Let me read to us then from Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And they said to one another, "'Come, let us cast lots, "'that we may know on whose account "'this evil has come upon us.' "'So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. "'Then they said to him, "'Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. "'What is your occupation? "'Where do you come from? "'What is your country? "'Of what people are you?' "'He said to them, "'I am a Hebrew, "'and I fear the Lord, "'the God of heaven.' and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered him a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And we'll pick up there next week, but please do keep that open Uh, in front of you. There's also an outline on the little back of the notice sheet as well. Um, You don't need me to tell you, especially if you're a visitor to these shores, that The United Kingdom is a funny place. Um, Our geography and our population are relatively small, but like it or not, for good or ill, our impact on the world over the last few centuries has been huge. In history, some of the, the greatest ever writers and scientists and social reformers were born here. Still today, we're home to some of the world's great entrepreneurs and sports people and entertainers. But spiritually speaking we are almost nowhere. Uh, We're not only confused or agnostic, but we're increasingly dismissive of and hostile to the God of the Bible. Just under 50% of our population claims that we're Christian, but you have to take that with something of a pinch of salt because only 28% claim to believe in God or any kind of higher power. How you can be a Christian and not believe in God I'm not so sure. Less than 5% go regularly to any kind of church at all. Uh, the result in Scotland is that on any uh, given Sunday, you couldn't fill Murrayfield, the rugby stadium in Edinburgh you see on TV from time to time. You couldn't fill Murrayfield twice with people who are in a church that claims to believe in the Bible. Statisticians who count these things say that Scotland is on the the cusp of being termed an unreached nation uh, that need to hear all over again about Jesus as if for the first time. It's hard to wonder sometimes if Britain has become so committed to running away from God, so indoctrinated by atheism and identity politics that we're almost beyond the reach of God. Or maybe that God no longer cares about saving us. Closer to home, I suspect we can all think of people we love dearly. Who seem so apathetic or even resistant to the truth claims of Jesus. That we have almost given up hope that they would ever even come to church or read through an account of Jesus' life let alone become a Christian. And I think every Christian I know would confess that however much we believe that the good news of Jesus is a matter of life and death and heaven and hell, too often our fear of the way that other people will react to us tends to neuter our efforts to share our faith. We're scared even of asking someone to come to a carol service, lest they like us a bit less. Uh, The book of Jonah is here to teach us that salvation belongs to the Lord. You'll see that phrase verbatim in chapter 2, verse 9, just at the bottom of the left-hand Page there. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's the key verse, the key statement of the whole book, and it introduces the two big themes that dominate the book. God's sovereignty on the one hand, he is the Lord who is in control. We'll see that again this evening. And his compassion on the other, he's the Lord who loves to save people. Or as um, verse 14 puts it in our own reading, the sailors say, The Lord does whatever he pleases, and what pleases him is saving lost people so we'll see chapter one he saves these pagan soldiers sailors rather from death in chapter two he saves disobedient Jonah from drowning in chapter three he saves evil Nineveh from destruction and we'll see these two big themes God's in charge and God's full of compassion bubble away all the way through this ancient book and they will ask us two questions And I've found them pretty searching as I've reflected on them again in preparing. If we're thinking about the fact that God's sovereign, that he's in charge, do we realize how big God is? Uh, The Bible translator J.B. Phillips once wrote a little book called Your God is Too Small. And uh, we will be asked these four Sunday evenings if maybe we've domesticated God a little bit in our own minds and hearts. If even after years and years some of us have following him and saying we love him, we still struggle to realize just how God, God is. And we struggle to let him be God because we think we know better. Question two, if question one is do we realize how big God is, question two is Do we share God's compassion? You know, when Jesus saw crowds of people in his own day, his heart broke for them. He said they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But you know, it's possible to experience God's goodness without sharing his heart. And we'll be asked, could that be true of us as a church family? It's been said that the book of Jonah is like a mirror, that you will see yourself in it over these next four Sunday evenings. But will we see ourselves in Jonah? He's being called the Mr. Angry of the Bible by one preacher. Is, will we see ourselves in him? Or will we see ourselves in our compassionate Lord Just chapter one tonight, three main characters, so three points. We'll think about Jonah, then the sailors, and then God himself. And first up, Jonah, he claims to fear the Lord, but he flees from him. Uh, Jonah's words in verse nine, they're the structural heart of the chapter. So the sailors have asked him some big identity questions, the kind of things we ask one another. What do you do? Where are you from? Who are your people? And in reply, he says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And straight away, there is nothing wrong with Jonah's theology. The sailors worship many gods. They're afraid of the sea. Jonah says, I fear Yahweh, the great I am, who made the sea. We heard from Isaiah that picture of God measuring the seas and the oceans in the hollow of his hand. And Jonah says, That's my God. That's my God. But you know, like I do, that it's possible to talk about how committed you are to God without actually knowing him. And if Jonah really feared God, he wouldn't be fleeing from him. Verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And we're not going to turn there, but In 2 Kings 14, we're told that Jonah was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel in the reign of Rehoboam II, so we're about 785 BC, and God had definitely worked through Jonah's ministry in the past, so we're sort of thinking, is this the sequel? What exciting thing is God going to do now through his prophet Jonah? But his name, Jonah, means the dove, and a bit like sheep today, Uh, doves back then were considered a bit stupid. So we're thinking, well, is he going to live up to his name or is this going to be an exciting chapter about what God does? There's about a hundred times in the Old Testament part of the Bible where the word of the Lord comes to someone, like it comes here to Jonah. This is the only time uh, it tells someone to get up and go to a foreign land and to preach. Arise, says God, go to Nineveh, that great City And as, as Bible readers, we, we know what is meant to happen next at this point. Um, God said to Abraham, you know, Abraham as he was then, go, and so he went. At a different point, he said to Elijah, the prophet, arise, go, so he arose and went. And now it's Jonah's turn, arise, go, verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going down to Tarshish, so he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. You'll see Tarshish is mentioned three times. The geography makes the point. Um, Joppa's on the coast. Nineveh is 350 miles inland to the northeast from where we are. Tarshish, 2,000 miles across the Mediterranean to the west. And he's meant to be going that way, and he goes that way. Running as far and as fast away from God as he can. And Jonah would have known Psalm 139. David says in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? He says, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your right hand will guide me. Your right hand will Hold me fast. But Jonah's not thinking about the God that he claims to believe in. What he's really doing is resigning. Uh, Twice we're told that he fled. Do you see the phrase, from the presence of the Lord? It's a technical phrase. In 1 Kings, Elijah stands uh, in the presence of the Lord. The phrase is almost symbolic of his ministry as a, as a prophet, as a spokesperson of God. But Jonah doesn't want to be a prophet anymore, so he runs away from the presence of the Lord and goes to the sea. In Bible language, that's a, a place of chaos and disorder and evil. You've got this thing with God's prophet, who's a preacher of salvation, a man who's been used by God in the past. Now God's asked him to do something that he doesn't really want to do. And so he chooses evil over God and flees. He claims to fear the Lord. But it's always our life that tells the real story about what we believe. And so it's left to the sailors to ask the obvious question in verse 10. What is this that you have done? What is this that you've done? Uh, you may know the Jewish festival of Yom Kippur is the, the most solemn day of the Jewish religious year. There's a moment in the liturgy for Yom Kippur where part of Jonah is read to the congregation. And they are all meant to reply, we are Jonah, because as they hear about his disobedience, they see in it a mirror of their own failings. And that's at least part of where we're meant to be as we read Jonah chapter one. Jonah's a lot like the the younger brother in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. He's running away from God. He's also a lot like the nation of Israel at the time of Jonah's ministry. Here was a nation that had had enormous spiritual privilege, a nation that claimed to fear the Lord. But when you look at their life, they despised the word of the Lord. Their God was too small. They were Jonah. Um, A guy I used to live with had been inviting his mate uh, called Jonah to church for years and uh, had had no success. Eventually, one Sunday, Jonah agreed to come to church and purely by chance, the minister happened to be preaching on Jonah chapter one. So they ended up, um, as often is the case, arriving quite late for church. And as Jonah walked through the doors of this church, the very first thing he heard the minister say was to bellow the question of verse 10, the sailor's question. Jonah, what are you doing? Jonah, why are you running away from the Lord? And uh, thankfully, he didn't turn around and leave straight away, but he left pretty soon afterwards. It, It may be, though, that God has brought one of you guys here this evening or someone watching at home Because he wants that question to echo around in your own head tonight. What is this that you are doing? Why are you running away from the Lord? Remember that Jonah had um, served God faithfully in the past. One day, though, God asked him to do something he didn't want to do. It's been called his inconvenient word. And so he'd had enough, and he ran away. I wonder if that's anyone here. Are you, Jonah? Well, God is the Lord of heaven and earth, and we're meant to lodge tonight. You can run, but we can't hide from him. So I do want to encourage you to come back to him while you can. And maybe meeting the sailors will encourage us to do that. They're they're much more than, in our second heading, they're much more than spectators in the drama here. They're presented as a deliberate foil to Jonah. He claims to fear God, but flees him. They know virtually nothing about God, but they end up fearing him. And the best way to get our heads into the sailors is to look at their fears. Three times in this little chapter, we're told that they're afraid. And that will help us get to know them. Only once is it due to the storm, interestingly enough. But we'll pick that one up. Verse 4. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So that the ship threatened to break up. It's like it almost had its mind of its own. I'm scared. I want to break up. Then the mariners were afraid. So we know it It must have been a pretty big storm. Sailors aren't known for their cowardice. They've been to sea before. I, I picture them with bulging muscles and really intimidating tattoos that's the kind of people that they are but verse four their ship is in danger and they are afraid Um, there's a saying there are no atheists in foxholes and so whatever they thought religiously before this moment they realize it's a moment of need and so each of them cries out to their own god and as they pray they act Um, So they they start hurling their cargo into the sea in a desperate frenzy. All the while, Jonah is down in the depths of the boat. And there's a clever thing about the way that the word down is used in these first few verses. Because first he went down to Joppa, then he went down into the inner part of the ship, then he laid down to sleep. We're being told when you're running away from God, the only way you're going is down. Here he is, fast asleep, while the storms rage. Hard not to think of another prophet. Fishermen are afraid. Big storm. He's asleep as well. But unlike the Lord Jesus, Jonah's isn't asleep of faith. Verse 6, So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not Perish. Is a deliberate echo of what God had said in verse two. God had said, arise and go. Jonah ran away. Now this sailor says to him, arise and pray. Pick it up at verse seven. Then they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What's your occupation? Where'd you come from? What's your country? Of what people are you? He said to them, I'm a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. It's the second fear, this time it's stronger. Literally the language is they feared a great fear because they're twigging that someone on the ship has picked a fight with the God who made the sea. And they're thinking, that's not very clever. Why would you do that? So they ask in verse 11, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous, He said to them, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. It's all a bit back to front. He's meant to be a prophet, but they seem to be more worried about his fate than he is about theirs. So weirdly, they look more like the God of compassion than the prophet of the God of compassion does. Nevertheless, their attempts at self-salvation fail. They always do. Verse 14, therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life uh, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So the sea's a mill pond. There's no physical danger anymore. And the scary sailors are more terrified than ever. Because they've just had a glimpse of the power, the sovereign power and majesty of the Lord of heaven and earth. And the point is that this is a a heartfelt and a right response to God. Jonah, as far as we know, never did get around to praying. They did. Jonah doesn't really fear the Lord. They do. And, And the text is wanting to press home that this was true faith. It's not just superstition, it's not just desperation. Three times in verse 13, uh, Yahweh's God's own personal name is used. They call out to the Lord Yahweh. They pray, O Lord Yahweh, because they know that Yahweh has done as he pleased. And verse 16 literally reads, Then the men feared Yahweh with great fear, and they sacrificed a sacrifice to Yahweh, and they vowed, vows They're serious about responding to God properly. No half-hearted gesture that would soon be forgotten when they got their feet on dry land. This is the authentic response to God that Jonah never quite managed. They barely knew of God, but they feared him truly. Fear is usually a negative word for us, but we pointed out before that that all the way through the Bible, fear is a right response to God. When he revealed himself at Sinai, the Israelites feared him. The preacher in Ecclesiastes said, the end of the matter has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of men and women. New Testament, the apostle Peter, to fear God. It's not a a shrinking, quaking fear that doubts God's kindness. It's a, a tender hearted and awe filled response to the goodness and the might of God. Theologian John Murray put it well the fear of God is the soul of godliness. It's challenging, isn't it, to see people who knew so little about God fearing Him properly when we who know so much more about God often fear him so little. But they'd seen his power, they knew they'd been rescued by danger, so they feared him exceedingly and they offered him a sacrifice and they made vows to him. Um, The Apostle Paul in the New Testament, therefore, in view of the mercies of God, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. For this is your spiritual worship. Third, as we've hinted and started to see already, the Lord is sovereign and compassionate. And it's crucial because although the book is called Jonah, the central character isn't the man himself, but his God. And all through this first chapter, it's clear that the Lord is not just the creator, but the, the one who's in charge, the sovereign ruler of everything. If he weren't in charge, the story would end at the end of verse three. God says, Go, Jonah says, No, and that's it. We all go home and move on to the next book in the Bible. But you, do you love those first three words of verse four? But the Lord. They've been written over so many lives. Many of the plans in someone's heart. So many of us have tried to run away from God, but the Lord determines his steps. So the Lord, we're told, hurled this great wind upon the sea. And from that moment on, hurling becomes a, a theme as people try to regain control of the situation. So in verse five, the mariners hurled, same word, their cargo overboard. Then in verse 12, Jonah says, hurl me overboard, same word. In verse 15, they hurl Jonah, same word, overboard. But there is no doubt who really is in control. And he's in charge of the, the big things like the wind and the waves. First as he makes the sea more and more tempestuous and more and more tempestuous and more and more tempestuous and then as it ceases from its raging. And he's in charge of the little things too like when the, the sailors cast their lots in verse 7 and um, there's a proverb, the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision is from the Lord. So the sailors have it right in verse 14 from start to finish the lord does whatever he pleases even his name makes the point do you know 11 times in our verses it's repeated the lord the lord the lord the lord yahweh the self-existent one the the creator the sustainer the sovereign controller the good and promise-making god the one in charge of everyone and everything But the lesson is that he's not just sovereign, he's also the Lord of compassion. Ask yourself, what what kind of God would send a preacher of salvation to the city of Nineveh? Uh, On one level, you might say that it was a strategic place. Um, It's a city of 120,000, so about the same size as Dundee, but it was an important city. Um, unlike, maybe. Uh, it, was the, it was the capital of Assyria. Sorry, Dundanians, I take it all back. I don't really. Uh, so it was the 120,000 and the capital of Assyria. But uh, although it was strategically important morally, it was an evil place. Uh, Nahum calls uh, Nineveh the, the bloody city and says that it was full of lies and plunder. And says that its streets were piled high with the dead bodies of its victims. And spiritually, it was clueless. God himself says they don't know their right hand from their left. And yet, God didn't send an airstrike against Nineveh. He sent a preacher of salvation to Nineveh. What kind of God would do that? And what kind of God would persevere with a man like Jonah? God says go, Jonah says no, but the Lord didn't give up on him, just as he didn't give up on the Apostle Peter hundreds of years later when he denied the Lord Jesus Instead, what God does here is set in train a fairly remarkable series of events, as we'll see, to make sure that Jonah ended up right where God had wanted him in the first place. And I take it that Jonah later realized what a fool he'd been, and that he recorded his own story that later got included in the Bible, so that we might learn to fear the Lord in a way that he didn't. But what kind of God gives disobedient people who should know better a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance? The answer is the kind of God that you need and the kind of God that I need. And what kind of God in the midst of it all takes the time to extend his mercy to a bunch of idol-worshipping sailors. Answer, the God of compassion and grace. The Puritan writer Thomas Watson used to call God's mercy his darling attribute. He was trying to find a way to express the fact that God is a God who loves to save for all of his power, for all of his might, for all of his holiness. He is a God who loves to save people who don't deserve it. And there's a vital link, as I'm hinting, between these two truths of God, his sovereignty and his compassion, because he can do what he pleases, and what pleases him is saving the lost. So judgment is always God's alien work, as it's been called. He doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's his moral will for all people to be saved, to come to a knowledge of the truth. Um, Some writers have tried to say that we see in Jonah here a picture of the cross that is uh, Jonah offered to be hurled into the sea so that others might be saved. So too Jesus offered himself to death as a ransom For many, I'm not sure that's in the text actually, but what is clear is that here is a picture of God's grace and that the greatest and clearest and fullest picture that you'll see of God's grace is the Lord Jesus hanging on the cross. So gracious for all of his might, so gracious that he was willing to die so that people like us Whether we know a little bit about him or we know a lot about him, we've all failed to love and honor God as we should. And the Lord Jesus hung on the cross so that our slate might be wiped clean, so that we might be forgiven for all of our wrong, so that God might have compassion on us and in love welcome us back into his family. He's the God that we need. The God of compassion as well as sovereign power. If you were to call out to him even tonight, he would respond to you with mercy. Spiritual peace for all eternity, because of Jesus. A picture of the seas suddenly being calm. There'd be no more tempest in your relationship with God. Just peace, as He takes all of your sin from you, says the Bible. And buries it in the depths of the sea, removes it from you as far as the east is from the west. He's the sovereign Lord, he's the compassionate Lord. He can do what he likes, and what he loves to do is to have mercy on people like us. And the sovereign Lord sent Jonah to Nineveh because he cares for the lost because he wants lost people to hear the wonderful news of his salvation in the same way that he's put us as a church here in St. Andrews, because there are plenty of lost people in this town, and he wants them to hear of his mercy too. He's put us in our families, on our streets, in our offices, in our golf clubs. He's given us a unique set of contacts and friends because he cares for the lost. And if he cares for the lost, then should not we he hasn't said to us, arise, go to St. Andrews, but Jesus did say, go and make disciples of all nations. Maybe it could be better translated wherever you go, make disciples of all nations. Uh, In his little book on uh, evangelism, on sharing your faith with other people, Richard Kokin compares the state of the world with the sinking of the Titanic. And he says that as the boat went down, the tragic loss of life was greatly increased by four factors one, a, a desperate shortage of lifeboats, just as we need hundreds more gospel living, gospel proclaiming churches in the UK. Two, a, low, a woeful lack of lifeboat training for the crew. Just as we will need to become more confident in sharing our faith with others. A wicked neglect, third of poorer passengers. Just as here in Scotland we have a particular need for churches in our poorest towns and cities. And worst of all, a shocking lack of Compassion on the part of the passengers in the half-empty lifeboat sometimes, who watched others drowning and didn't lift a finger. All too often we are Jonah, but our Lord is Lord of all, we should fear him. And he's the God of compassion. We should receive his compassion and then in his name, go and make disciples. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we are Jonah as we meet you afresh, the God of heaven and earth, the one who is in charge of all things and yet has compassion on the lost. We recognize that we have run from you in our own hearts. We haven't recognized how big you are and our hearts don't reflect your compassion as often or as deeply as they should and so we want to thank you again for the Lord Jesus the one who is the son of man who will be worshipped one day by people from every land and nation who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and as we praise you for his compassion and claim it afresh for ourselves we pray please that you would help us to have your heart for our world and for those who are lost within it and we pray it in Jesus precious name Amen